Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode six of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, also called Call Ruby. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. All right, Sam. So this week I was chatting with uh, Gina Cho, who's one of the writers for Lawyerist, um, and she does a lot of writing and speaking around the country about stress reduction, mindfulness meditation, a variety of different things on those topics. Um, She just did a webinar last week for my case titled From Stress and Anxiety to Mindfulness, How to Increase Happiness in Law Practice that had something like 400 attendees. Um, And one of the things I thought was really interesting in chatting with her about it is that she took a poll of the audience before the web webcast and 97% of the people there were in that moment moderately or highly stressed and during the webinar she did a 5 minute simple meditation and took a poll immediately afterwards and 97% were not stressed um so she, literally almost every single one of these 400 lawyers was completely stressed out going into this thing and after five minutes of her simple meditation, they all felt better. Uh, and I thought it was a super interesting statistic. I think it's really interesting that this is, for some reason, a trendy thing right now. And I am perfectly happy to concede that I'm part of that trend. Um, but I thought that statistic was really interesting, especially because stress for lawyers is legitimately such a big deal. So, you know, I'm like hyper allergic to trendy things and wishy-washy coachy <laughs> mind. like so the mindfulness thing is something that i've just resisted even learning about because it sounds like hippie crap to me yeah, um, I get it. but uh but i was i was at a, a local conference and you know kind of got suckered into a presentation where that was on mindfulness and and included uh, a little meditation session um, because you also know I'm prone to just random experiments, like I'm only gonna, you know, I'm only gonna eat rice this week and stuff. So yeah, are you gonna sign up for a Soylent experiment? I I have purchased my Soylent because <laughs> <laughs> you know whatever it sounds interesting. So I'll I'll ex- do the experiment. Your form of skepticism is very strange to me. Uh, you know, there's like a bar to get over, and once you get over the bar, I will I will do the experiment and see if I think it works. So for whatever reason, the mindfulness got into my head and I decided to try meditation for a little while. And, you know, it's more or less stuck. Um, I find running to be equally meditative. So if I run, I don't I don't necessarily make extra time to meditate that day. But, you know, I got to say, it, it, it really does just kind of settle my brain and, you know, potentially more than anything, uh, you know, now that we are so connected all the time and I am really connected all the time, I think just like tuning out for 20 minutes is just, it, it really does a, a good number on me. And so that doesn't, you know, I think 
in Gina's webinar, it's quite possible that people were sort of pre-programmed to switch their answers. But at the same time, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I would say I am also one of the least hippy-dippy people I know, um, and not someone who's prone to being highly stressed. But I try to meditate every day and have for months, and I'm feeling good about it. Yeah, I think it's I I think it's weird that it's just like explosively popular right now. But right, how a three thousand year old thing is now a fad. Yeah, but yeah. like lawyers, if anybody should be meditating as a form of stress re reduction, lawyers ought to be. We're a stressed out bunch, so. Yeah, so this is all to say that I'll link to the uh, recording of her webinar in the show notes, and anyone who wants to hear what she has to say or follow along with her practice can go for it. Well, and we'll link to some of Gina's articles on Mindfulness for Lawyerist, which are, um, if you're curious and you want to know some more, uh, she wrote one in particular that's kind of a good overview of what it is and how to get started, which I think is really valuable. So so here's mine, Aaron. Mine is that uh, Jordan Furlong uh, is at Legal Tech New York, which is going on right now. And uh, we're not there because it f always feels like more of a big law thing than a solo and small firm thing. But he reported on Twitter that uh, somebody did a poll from the podium and only about 10% of the attendees in the audience uh, said that they use two-factor authentication with Gmail. There are obviously some caveats, and Jordan had a conversation about this on Twitter, such as how many of the rest didn't even know what two-factor authentication is. But, I mean, w I think we can assume that the audience at Legal Tech New York are some of the most tech-savvy lawyers in the country, and the fact that only one in ten of them were using what has become basic security for Gmail is kind of astonishing to me. I mean, I'm not going to lie, that statistic scares the shit out of me. Yeah. I mean, you know I've been working on a book about basic tech competence and how legal competence and tech competence are actually part of the same thing. And this is just one of those things. Like if you aren't securing your Gmail with two-factor authentication and you're using it for client communication, I don't think you're taking reasonable precautions. I think you're being unethical and I think you're playing fast and loose with your client's information. But apparently that's not shared by 90% I mean, of I lawyers. Want, I wonder if you ask that same audience, do you use it for anything? What the answer would be. Well, but remember, look back um, to the ABA survey and something obscene like 75% of lawyers said that they were securing their clients' information by putting a confidentiality notice on their emails. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, yep. so it, it's just that they, we are still a profession of Luddites and that means we are dangerous, actually. So to get really in the weeds here, um, Last week, I asked you to do a short presentation for a CLE I was doing on 30 apps in 30 minutes. And one of the things you mentioned was Google Authenticator, which is an app to help manage two-factor authentications. And I wanted to tell you that I've actually switched to a different app called Authy, which does exactly the same things in exactly the same ways, with one exception, which is that it can be recovered. Um, Google Authenticator is a native file on your phone, and if your phone were ever to disappear, you would lose all ability to do two-factor authentication. You can certainly use paper backup codes to reset some things, but um, Authy keeps your account in the cloud, um, and so you can install it on a different device if you need to, and I think that's slightly better backup for my peace of mind. Um, that sounds good. It's A-U-T-H-Y. I'm looking at it right yep. now. 
It, lo it looks pretty slick. Huh. Well, that's that's a good tool. Uh, and I think the last bit of news that we would be remiss if we did not mention is that Harper Lee has decided to publish uh, a, I guess you'd call it a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Which is not, it's, it was written first, and her publisher said, why don't you, um, and it included, it was about a woman named Scout, and she, the publisher said, why don't you actually write the backstory of Scout? And I guess the, the sto original story had included some of the backstory of Scout. And um, uh, one, a, I guess a lawyer actually discovered uh, the, uh, the manuscript while going through her papers, and um, Harper Lee has agreed to publish it, which sounds awesome. Sounds great. We'll see if it is a legal book itself. Yeah, who knows if it's even a, a book about law, but the fact that something else is out there about the most famous, I sp we can say that, right? The most famous book about lawyers in, in English, probably. I think so, that's fair. Yeah, so that's pretty neat. Um, okay, so you can find the links to all of these things in the show notes on lawyerist.com. And for today's interview, I'm talking to Allison Monahan from The Girl's Guide to Law School and a couple of other similar projects about law school success and what that means for legal careers and going solo for law students and new lawyers today. So let's hear that. Before we get started with the interview, I just want to let you know that midway through my interview with Allison, her Skype connection gets pretty bad, and it can be a little bit hard to understand her at times. So I just want you to know that before you start listening, uh, don't feel bad if you decide to turn it off, but if you keep listening, I think there's some really good stuff in there, which is why we've decided to just go ahead and release this interview anyway. So without further ado, here is the interview. Okay, uh, I'm here with Allison Monahan of The Girl's Guide to Law School, and as is my tradition now, I'm going to let her give her own bio and introduce herself to you. Thanks, Sam. I'm happy to be here. Um, I am indeed Allison Monahan. I have started The Girl's Guide to Law School and also run the Law School Toolbox, the Bar Exam Toolbox, and a legal career site called Trebuchet Legal, which hopefully will be rebranded soon. Um, I'm a 2006 graduate of Columbia Law School with sort of a weird background. Before law school, I did a master's in architecture and worked for several years as a programmer and also studied sociology. So not exactly your typical path. Um, and after school, I clerked for a federal judge and worked as a patent litigator in a big law firm in San Francisco. So I'm excited to be here. Wow, I, I guess I didn't realize all of that about you. I knew that you had gone to Columbia and that you uh, had a law school or a post-law school career in big law, but I didn't know you were a developer or an architecture ma master's degree. That's pretty cool. Hey, it's why we do our own bios. <laughs> um, so I, what I wanted to talk to Allison about today is law school success and more specifically what that means now in 2015 as opposed to when I graduated in 2003 and when she graduated in 2006. Um, well, Allison, it's a very different economy right now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started law school in 2003, when you were graduating, I guess it was a, in some ways it was a little bit like today in certain aspects in that, um, you know, the economy had been in recession for a while, applications were down, 
And so when I started law school, it was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm sick of being a programmer. I was in San Francisco during the dot-com bust. That was going nowhere fast. It wasn't apparent that this, you know, new Web 2.0 thing was going to really pick up. Um, and so, you know, and then by the time I graduated in 2006, it was boom time. Um, you know, anybody with a pulse could get a job in a large firm coming out of Columbia and was basically expected to. You know, I had summer associate positions my first first year, second year, third year post, post-graduation. I mean, it was crazy. You know, and you could basically... When I decided I had jobs in New York and when I decided during my clerkship I wanted to work in San Francisco, I literally sent two emails and I was on a plane a week later to interview at both of those firms. I don't think that would happen today. Uh, it doesn't seem as likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the case when I graduated either. <laughs> yeah, it's really all about timing, I think, law school. Um, you start in, the, start in the bottom of a recession when no one else wants to go and then hope for the economy to pick back up, which I mean in some ways I think is happening to a certain extent, although I would argue there are probably structural changes in the profession, you know, particularly at the big law level and client pushback on fees and things that are probably not going to see us returning to the boom time of sort of 2006, um, where, you know, popping champagne left and right. Yeah, it may be a boom time for the legal industry, but it probably isn't going to be a boom time for junior associates. I think it's a great way of looking at it. I mean, it looks like, if anything, it looks like the legal industry is poised to, you know, do some interesting things, even if I hate the word disruption. Um, there's certainly a lot of expansion. But yeah, I I think that those entry-level jobs probably aren't going to get any sexier than they were a decade ago or well, even I mean, six I mean, years they ago. Haven't, like, salaries haven't gone up since then, at least right. not base salaries. I think bonuses are actually still down. So, you know, it's definitely, it's a different era. Well, and plus, even if you like those salaries... Uh, this is something that it, it it's still true, it's always been true, that the practice of law is a heck of a lot different than most law students realize when they go to law school. <laughs> I'm not sure most of them have any clue. I certainly didn't really have a clue. I didn't. Yeah, I thought it'd you be know, I, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I had friends who worked in big firms and they were sort of like, hey, you've been over to our house on like a Saturday when my husband gets called into the office. You remember that, right? Like, this is what you're signing up for. Um and, you know, they told me stories about all kinds of crazy stuff. But, you know, I didn't know. I had no idea what they did on a daily basis. I have an interesting perspective now because my wife is also a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And because I don't practice law really at all anymore. I do take the occasional pro bono case. But that's about it. And, um, you know, my I so I've sort of come down from that stress of daily law practice. And... Um, but she's a lawyer, and she has a stressful daily law practice. And it's amazing to see it from as a knowledgeable outsider, um, just how much she works and how hard it is. And um, you don't really give a lot of thought from day to day to the obligations you have to your clients and the fact that you can't turn down that Saturday phone call. Um, yeah, it's a huge responsibility. I mean, the other thing I think is almost funny in retrospect, um, you know, I was a litigator. And, I, you know, obviously I had a bunch of friends at the firm who were litigators and almost mm-hmm. to a person, they've kind of said, you know, I realize I don't really like to fight about stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you know, they're like, I really, in fact, a friend of mine did a great series on the Girl's Guide um, where she talked about moving from a big law litigation practice to go in-house at a startup and to do corporate work. 
And she says, you know, of course I should, you know, she went to Yale, like she's not an idiot. Um, she's like, of course I should have thought about this, but like no one ever asked me, like, do you enjoy fighting about things all the time? I mean, that's like, that was my daily life. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. So she's really happy now, but you know, in a completely different sort of work than what she kind of fell into. And, you know, you've just mentioned someone from Yale, you went to Columbia, I went to the University of Minnesota, which some describe as a top tier toilet, but I thought was a very good law school, so whatever. A um, friend of mine here went there, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, they're so good schools, but let's face it, most law school student law students are not going to those schools and have all of those problems compounded because big law isn't an option for them, just like it really wasn't for me. Um, getting a job at all might not even be an option, and so they may be looking at alternatives like solo practice, which they really aren't ready for or prepared for or thinking about... Um, or they may be prepared for not practicing law. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the reality. Uh, I, mean, I guess I would push back a little bit on, you know, obviously I think people who go to these sort of top schools are very lucky in certain ways. But at the same time, I think there's so much more pressure to sort of not take any sort of alternate path um, that you don't necessarily get at a school where that's not an option. So, for example, you know, I always kind of maybe had a sense like, big law might not be the best fit for me long term and so I tell people at Columbia you know hey like I think I want to open a solo practice doing family law right <laughs> you know I mean you know you laugh and I literally got laughed at people are like that's impossible you can't do that so yeah, I mean, I, like I can't do it like I think it's possible you're telling me it's a bad idea they're like but you're on law review like why would you want to do that <laughs> I think uh, yeah I know like at, at the time I went out on my own I think I knew two or three other graduates of, of the University of Minnesota Law School that had done that, um, from, yeah, my, just, for, from the years around me anyway. Yeah, it's just inconceivable to people that you would want to make a different choice. Yeah, uh, it's true. It's, it, you know, it's interesting when uh, Above the Law just published something about how practical skills programs at law school don't help people get jobs. Um, but I've always wondered if that was the point. Teaching practical school skills to law students who are probably going to end up starting their own firm seems like a really important thing. Yeah, or just to help them like feel confident going out in the world. I mean, maybe it's not like a direct pathway to getting a job, but certainly when you show up to your first job and you know, like you've actually answered, you know, um, interrogatories or whatever. Like I remember showing up and they're like, here's some discovery. I'm like, what is this? I've never seen this before in my life. <laughs> you know, and I'd, I'd been a law clerk and they're like, you've never seen an interrogatory. Nope. <laughs> I was like, uh, is that like something you studied in Civ Pro? I'm pretty sure we didn't do the discovery part. Like I was a TA and I'm pretty sure we didn't cover this. <laughs> Sounds about right. Okay. So if the money is dubious and the prestige isn't really there because you start out fresh from law school, you know, what, what should the graduate right now expect and how should they line up their expectations of what success means? Well, I think people have to get really realistic about what the outcome from their school is likely to be. And this is certainly something I would strongly encourage people to give a lot of thought and do some research on before, maybe ideally before they apply, but certainly before they accept an offer. You know, assume that you're at the median of whatever school you're applying to. What do your outcomes look like? And, you know, you can't just really take the school's sort of documented, you know, numbers on this, but actually talk to some people, you know, talk to a 3L who does or doesn't have a job, 
find out why they do or don't have a job. Talk to some recent grads. Like, you've got to get really get a sense of what a realistic idea is. You know, does the average person graduate without a job? Does the average person graduate and get a high-paying job? Does the average person, you know, graduate and have to go out on their own because they have no other options? You know, you want to have a clear understanding so that you can kind of, you know, every... I saw some great statistics once about incoming 1Ls where I think 90% of them think they're going to be in the top half and something like 70% are pretty sure they're going to be in the top 10%. Um, <laughs> well, fortunately, by the by the time they'll be hearing this episode of our podcast, um, they will all have their first semester grades in, and so yeah, they'll be able to reassess. Yeah, which is pretty shocking for a lot of people because, you know, I mean, even if you go to what might not be the most prestigious law school in the world, like you're still someone who has succeeded in school your entire life. You're pretty good at taking tests. Uh, you, you haven't typically experienced a lot of failure. <laughs> and when you start talking about, you know, when you go to school and it's a forced curve and someone's going to be at the bottom of it and that person is probably going to be pretty smart and they're probably going to work pretty hard and that person might be you. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's that's so true. And and I, it's the first semester is a big reality check, but very few people drop out, right? I mean, they don't. And I have this conversation not infrequently. In fact, even with students that we work with as tutors, just basically saying, "Hey, are you really sure that this is something you want to invest? You know, another two and a half years and a hundred thousand dollars plus in? Like, maybe there's something else is a better fit for you." Yeah, I mean, I found that um, you know for. For all that grades are are questionable value, they were pretty they were pretty steady for me. I worked my butt off my first semester, slacked off a bit my second semester, and my grades were about the same through the rest of law school. So, they they turned out to be the right grades for me, <laughs> at least. Yeah, I mean, so. you know, they test what they test, and I think you know it's possible to improve them. Certainly, of like we work with students who improve their grades, but they do that because we tell them to change their approach. Right. So unless you're getting that kind of outside feedback and advice like yeah your grades are probably basically about the right ones because you're doing what you're going to be doing so so part of the equation is figuring out like here's where i am in school here's what my school here's sort of the realm of possibilities for my school and for me within that um and then i guess you just have to the students have to do some self-reflection and say is that is that the the future that i want for this degree Absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the schools in fairness are starting to do stuff like this because I think they also see the value in their students getting a job that's a better fit for them because if nothing else, they're going to be happier. They're going to be more likely to donate. They're not going to carry the hatred that like everyone I know carries about their law school (laughs) and refuses to donate. Not only doesn't donate, but sends like inflammatory emails, you know, when the alumni people ask for money. Right. That's a different conversation about Columbia, but, um, (laughs) you know, so I think, you know, like Georgetown, for example, has a great 1L program where they do, I think it's an entire year. It's called like the search before the search. And it's all about sort of figuring out, you know, what you're looking for. And, you know, if the schools are not offering that, I think it's something that people can do to a certain extent on their own, you know, whether it's with a career counselor or just reading a book. I mean, you know, any series of books about like, what's the right fit for you? Looking at personality tests, thinking about how do you want to work? You know, do you like, are you extroverted? Do you like working with people? Well, you know, a lot of lawyers don't do that. So you've got to sort of think about, you know, areas of the law where those skill sets and those kind of traits might be more desirable. And if you're super introverted, you know, you probably don't want to be a family lawyer. Right. <laughs> Maybe and tax is a better fit. It sounds like part of what you're saying is that somewhere around the middle of law school, you should be figuring out um, what you want and what you're capable of 
and apply some realism to it and then start going after it from the middle of law school, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the more you can do in school, I mean, because frankly, like you're not going to have this amount of time when you start working, unless you're unemployed, then you're probably depressed and you're like, you know, you're not really getting anything done. But, you know, one of my professors in law school is like, you know, you think you're busy now, but wait until you start working. Like, you're not going to have time to think about the type of lawyer that you want to be. Um, he's like, this is the time to do that. Because yeah, because all of a sudden it's gonna, you're going to be five years in and you're going to realize what type of lawyer you are. Yeah, he's like, you know, exactly. If you don't think about it, I can tell you exactly where you're going to end up. You're going to be miserable, stressed out, like working at a big firm, unhappy, no idea what you want to do. He's like, I know where this is going to lead. You know, like you have to sort of take a step back and think about what do you want to do on a daily basis? Like who do you, you I mean, basically who do you want to serve? That's what lawyers do. They're in a service profession. Um, You know, who's your ideal client? Who do you want to work with? What kind of stuff excites you? Um, and if you haven't ever thought about that, you know, it's unlikely that you're just going to fall into the perfect position. I mean, maybe it would happen, but I doubt it. Well, I suppose another aspect is if your idea was that you wanted to make a lot of money and you realize that big law probably isn't an option for you, um, you're going to have to make that money yourself and you're going to have to figure out how to do that. You are going to have to figure out how to do that. And, you know, frankly, I've always said there are easier ways to make money than being a lawyer. I like to say that uh, law is a really hard way to make a decent living. It's true. And it's certainly a very hard way to make, like, you know, a lot of money. <laughs> right. Some do, but uh, but do. very few. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, if you want to make a lot of money, just go be a banker. Like, it's right. way more efficient. We have our own 1%. It's that spike on the right side of the salary curve. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like I worked for Quinn Emanuel. It was, like, the, I think the second highest, like, grossing firm in the country or something but you know i mean you talk about profits per partner and in a firm like that like they're not spread evenly right <laughs> it's per a few partners really yeah, yeah. john quinn's making a lot of money mm-hmm. <laughs> so um so let's say the people listening to this are in their second or third year we've kind of been addressing our conversation to first year students who still have time to cut their losses and get out or um change perspective on what they want their future as a lawyer to be. What if you're a 3L or you've recently graduated and all of a sudden you've had a picture of what your future is going to look like? What's the best way to adapt? Well, I think my advice is typically you've just got to, I mean, one of the things you really have to do is you've got to talk to people. So, you know, do some inter- informational interviews and just sort of ask like, hey, you know, tell me about your day. What do you like? What do you not like? And people are very reluctant to do that sort of thing and they think it's like they're secretly searching for a job or whatever but I mean if you approach it from the perspective of like I'm just kind of trying to figure out what would be a good fit for me and like you're someone that I respect and admire um, and I'd like to hear from you I think that's a really good way to go about it Um, because the reality is you know a lot of this is it is sort of who you know and it's not just you know that who your father knows or whatever but who you've actually made an effort to get out and know Um, you know I was talking to a 3L the other day at Hastings, and I've been sort of informally mentoring him since he started, actually since before he started, only because he sent me an email and was like, hey, I'd really like to talk to you. And, you know, so now I think potentially that's a relationship that really pays off for him. And, you know, I think he's great. I'll do whatever I can to help him. Particularly, I'm now kind of invested in him. I'm like, hey, this is like my guy, you know, I've got to make sure he does well. It's actually Um, kind of amazing to me how few contacts it takes with somebody 
before they will take an interest in you. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, two or three is enough for me to know who somebody is and take an interest in them as long as they continue to pop up once in a while. Yeah, and as long as they're nice about it and they're appreciative and, you know, like you want to see people succeed and like it's, it's not a huge effort for me to like meet this guy occasionally for coffee and then when we talk, if I'm like, oh, you know, there are these two or three other people given what you're telling me you now want to do that you should talk to. And I know that, you know, I know he's going to follow up on that. And that's a huge thing, too, is people who drop the ball, um, you know, if you're a law student and you set up an informational interview and you don't show up um, or, you know, you just generally don't follow up or you don't answer emails or you disappear. I mean, you know, stuff like that does not really give a good impression. So, you know, I think a lot of the sort of success aspects are really these softer skills that, you know, they're not impossible, but people are not, you know, the schools are not really teaching them basically about how do you interact with people? How do you get someone to take an interest in you? Um, I've always thought that schools do a terrible job of teaching people how to network because they make it sound like it's capitalized and in italics and of some sort of formulaic thing when really it's just getting out and making friends with people. Right. And a lot of it's just like being smart about it. So for example, when I knew that I was leaving my firm before I told anyone there, I took on a pro bono case. Um, and the reason I took that pro bono case, you know, partly was because I wanted to see if I liked doing divorce law, answer no. But more importantly, I took it because I knew they would give me an entire sheet of potential mentors. Right. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go through that list. I'm going to find the person that I most want to talk to. And then I'm going to send her an email being like, hey, I've got this question about my, you know, pro bono divorce case I'm working on. Can I talk to you about it? I'd really love to get your take on it. I mean, do I really need her advice? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, the point is I end up in this woman's office who's like a leading solo practitioner, divorce woman, you know, wrote the like horn book on whatever. And we're chatting and then she looks at me and says, huh, you know, have you ever thought about the fact that you could leave your firm job and basically do what I do and like, I was like, actually, yes, I have. In fact, I'm quitting, you know, in two weeks. So, <laughs> you know, then we had this whole, and then, you know, then she's instantly on board. And we had an hour-long conversation about, like, the logistics of, well, how do you do this? You know, what would I need to do? How do I learn this? Like, who can I talk to? So stuff like that, you know, it's being smart about your options and kind of seeing where they lead and not just saying, oh, well, I couldn't do, I can't take a pro bono case because I don't know what I'm doing. Or I can't reach out to this person because they don't want to talk to me. You know, like give people that opportunity to help you and oftentimes they really will. Yeah, uh, that's totally been my experience. I, I found that um, one of the most important things I've ever done is I just try to have coffee or lunch or breakfast or something with people. Um, and I, I try never to do it as a, um, me, you know, trying to get things from them, but mm -hmm. as a, um, you know, with your pro bono example, it's a great example of where, um, even though that other attorney, you were asking something of her, you ha were both invested in this pro bono, um, organization, presumably because she was on the list of possible mentors. Um, right. And you know, I sort of asked her, well, you know, cause obviously whenever anyone starts a solo practice, your question is, well, how would I, how would I get help? And so I asked her directly, I was like, well, why would people help me? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, wouldn't I be competing with them? And she says, look, you know, she's like, my generation of people is concerned about who's going to follow us. Like, who's going to take over the treatise when I leave? Like, I've devoted my work, my life's work to basically doing this type of work. And I want to make sure that there's someone to leave it with. And, you know, I'm looking at you and saying, like, you might be that person. So that's one of the reasons that we're willing to help you. 
Well, and plus, solo practice is not competitive in sort of a head-to-head -head sense. It's competitive. Right. She was also like, like you're not going to be competing with me for years. You know, <laughs> like well, I'll ask you the work I want to do. <laughs> well, and, I mean, and there, there's almost nobody who's going to go to her and to you and simultaneously be comparing you. It's competing more in the sense of like whose reputation is bigger in the local the local network and who's maybe whose website performs better it's not in like it's not like the two of you are standing there punching each other to be the one to stand up in front of a potential client so yeah she was basically like look there is plenty of work to go around yeah. here yeah. <laughs> like i'll send you people i don't want to deal with i mean it it feels like we keep coming around to uh, one of the alternatives that may have to be what success looks like is solo and small firm practice yeah well, I mean, I think the numbers bear that out. I mean, something more than 50% of lawyers in practice do that, don't they? Mm-hmm. I think so, it's something like 55 or 60% are solo yeah, or small firm. Yeah. And I think it's even higher for women. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny because it's this kind of like, oh, we can't talk about that in law school. But it's like, this is what people do. Yeah, and I think, you know, ha having done it myself for 10 years-ish, um, I, it's a, actually a really good option. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just don't see, the, I, I don't know why I was so afraid of it in law school and why everybody seemed so afraid of it. Um, it's actually a really good option. It's a hard way to earn a decent living, but you can earn a decent living and you don't yeah. even have to be very good at it to earn a decent living. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, this is what I tell people who are like freaking out when they graduate law school. I'm like, okay, you've passed the bar. You're a member of a cartel. Right. So it's time for you to start taking advantage of that like don't tell me you don't have any options um i mean i think the irony is yeah it's like really difficult particularly in the first few years but after that i think you know the study suggests that like people are happier because they have i mean one of the reasons is that they have control over you know your input is at least somewhat related to your output and you have control over when you're working and what clients you're taking all these things are not true when you're working a large firm yeah and i think uh i do think it's really hard to go solo right out of law school Maybe unless you've gone to one of these law schools that has some kind of a incubator program or a clinic or a practical skills program. But, you know, I went solo three years out of law school and um, I, it was still really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's always going to be scary to start a solo practice. But I agree with you. It must be terrifying to do that straight out of school, particularly if you have not gotten the requisite experience. Um, but, you know, I mean, if somebody's thinking about that, and I think a lot of people are, you know, there are ways to get some experience and feel more comfortable. You know, you can do a clinic, you can do like all sorts of externships and things. And I think those are the things people really should be taking advantage of. Um, and also, you know, you can learn a lot of the kind of business and marketing stuff that frankly, you'll probably have to teach yourself, but you know, you can start doing that. And I know people who went to law school with the express goal of starting their own practice they spent three years positioning themselves to do that. And then the day that they got admitted to the bar, they sort of pressed publish and their website went live and their business cards were there and they were ready to go. Um, and, you know, that's definitely, I think, less stressful than someone who's just like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I just passed the bar and now I have to figure all this out. No, that makes good sense. And, and I think if you've lined up your mentors by the time you graduate, that can be really useful, too. Yeah, absolutely. Because the reality is just, it's, you know, it's really stressful to do all this by yourself. Yeah. And I, I mean, I couldn't have done it without good mentors for sure. No, I think it's impossible. Like there's just, there's just too much stuff, you know, it's like, how do you, everything from like, how do you get clients? How do you keep track of money? Do you, do, do you need malpractice insurance? Like, well, and not to mention like, oh, the substantive stuff that you've got to know. 
Yeah, um, I, I mean, I keep find I found that uh, I kept feeling ambushed by the law. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. You know, it's like there's always something. And yeah, without without somebody telling me I was about to be ambushed, then it just would have been so much worse. Yeah, and also just like keeping track of like what are the deadlines. I mean, if you don't, you know, I mean, I would be a disaster doing that sort of stuff. We have uh, I'm now I'm in a position to do a little bit of mentoring and um, and I get to correct people of all their um, what now feel like dumb mistakes, but of mm-hmm. course seemed like perfectly honest mistakes at the time. And I you know I've talked to a number of young lawyers and about you know settlement agreements or um, civil procedure issues, and they're like, whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm like, you yeah. gotta know. <laughs> That doesn't so. really stop. I mean, yeah, it's like knowing what you don't know is sort of terrifying. But I mean, that doesn't even stop. I was clerking and I was a civ pro TA. So at some point, this case had been kind of going for a little while and I got it for the first time. And I remember reading the briefs and being like, huh. And I went and talked to the judge the day before the hearing and said, I don't think there's subject matter jurisdiction here. And he says, huh, yeah, no, I don't think so either. <laughs> so so he, we go into federal court the next morning. And he sort of looks at the lawyers and says, um, could someone explain to me how there's subject matter jurisdiction in this case? Because I'm not really seeing it and you haven't briefed it. And one of them looks at the other and says, well, Your Honor, we'd be willing to waive that. <laughs> <laughs> at which point he says, yeah, I'm going to give you 24 hours, but I think this case is going to state court. <laughs> That's good. It's, it's always good to know that it happens to everyone. <laughs> Yeah, he was just like, well, that's what he told us the first week. He's like, the great thing about clerking is you'll feel a lot better about your own abilities by the end because you'll just see, like, you know, people are busy, they don't think about things, and you'll just see them make, like, these incredibly stupid mistakes. That makes sense. So, so to to maybe to sort of sum up here, um, if you're in law school and you've just gotten through your first semester or you're nearing the end of your first year, um, what should you be doing? Well, I think one thing people need to be doing is paying a lot more attention to their career than they currently are. I mean, it's very easy to get sucked into studying and getting good grades or trying to get good grades. And like, that's all very important. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, are you carving out even an hour a week to sort of go for coffee with someone who might become a mentor? I mean, ideally, it'd be a lot more than an hour. But, you know, most people aren't even doing that. Um, and, you know, these sort of steps taken routinely, you know, email Sam and be like, hey, I'd love to write a guest post for Lawyerist on the school experience. You know, I'm sure you would probably be receptive to that. I would be receptive to that. We accept guest posts. Um, you know, but just people don't even think about their career. And then suddenly it's like, oh. And the other thing I think that's really critical is when you have, when you manage to have experiences, whether it's taking a pro bono case or working a summer job or, you know, maybe shadowing someone or even just going to court. I mean, a lot of schools are near the courthouse. You can just show up there and see what's going on. Is to really pay attention to your own reaction to that. Um, because you will know on some level, like, is this something that I'd actually want to do with my life? Do you see life? yourself in the shoes of the lawyer that you're looking at? Yeah, like, it, but to really sit and think, you know, would I, like, given this person, you know, with the amount of money they make and the amount of hours they work and what they deal with, like, would I want their life? Um, and to really get sort of real about that. And I think that can help people figure out, okay, this might be a good way for me to go. Or, yeah, I'm getting a bad sense about this. I mean, maybe litigation's not for me because I'm actually uncomfortable with fighting. <laughs> right. And so, in, in a sense, stop focusing on the law school stuff, the grades and graduation, and start focusing on the long game what where you actually want to end up. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's really critical because the reality is law school is three years. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard and whatever, but frankly, the third year is a joke. So, you know, you can just pretty much accept that, you know, you just get rid of that. You don't have to worry about that. Um, and, well, yeah, and if, if your plan, if your your new plan is to go solo, then your grades are more pretty much irrelevant. Right. And, you know, I mean, frankly, unless you're going to get that big law job, your grades are largely irrelevant. I mean, you know, my law school roommate literally never looked at her grades because she wanted to do public interest work. And she's like, this is not what people care about. Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't want to I don't want to have that judgment about whether I'm good or bad at whatever this is. She's like, I don't think it's relevant. Um, And so she literally had a friend of hers look at her transcript to make sure she had passed her classes and tell her that she had passed. (laughs) And she never looked at it. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so when, when should somebody who is in the middle of law school think about dropping out? And that's a strategic decision, not a failure. Right. I mean, I think, I think that's a great way of looking at it too. I think, you know, it, I think if if you see it as absolutely, it's a failure, you're not going to do it. And then you're just going to keep going just to prove the point. Um, I think looking at looking at it as what other opportunities this does this potentially open up for me is a much as you said more strategic and better way of looking at it i mean honestly honestly i think everyone should think seriously about it regardless of how you're doing um if only to think about it you know you can decide not to but if you just kind of float through and you don't really if you're not continually evaluating like is this something that i want to be doing is this something that's working for me is this something i'm good at Mm -hmm. um because, I mean, why do something that's just a perpetual struggle? You know, I went to architecture school. It was three years of master's. Let me tell you, it's far more difficult than law school. And I was terrible at it. Like, <laughs> I, was not, I mean, I'm not a good architect. I can't draw. Um, but I didn't go with the, th- with the thought that I would be an architect in the end. So I didn't really think seriously about dropping out. I just wanted to do it as sort of an educational experience and to get comfortable with failure and all these things. But, you know, I mean, objectively speaking, I probably should have dropped out. I probably never should have gone. Um, well, if nothing else, having having the conversation with yourself about whether or not you ought to drop out, it should clarify your reason for staying, if nothing else. Exactly. And I think, I think really sitting and thinking seriously about that and not just saying, oh, I have to do this. Um, and, you know, and I have this conversation with students. I'm like, well, what if you weren't... Say for the, say for the sake of argument, you weren't going to go back to law school. What would you do instead? And often they have a really good answer. And I'm like, go do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or I'm going to law school because I want to be a politician. Well, there are better ways to get there. Yeah, I mean, no one ever listens. I don't ever drop out. But, you know, like, (laughs) you know, I'm like, this, actually, what you're telling me makes a lot of sense. You know, (laughs) I would really strongly consider doing that. And and then if you're later in law school and um, maybe... You, you're listening to us or, or for whatever reason, you've realized that your definition of success is unrealistic now. Um, you know, one of your better options is probably looking at solo practice, but could be non-legal futures, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you say solo practice, it doesn't have to be by yourself. You know, you could like team up with a friend and if that makes you feel better about it. Um, yeah. You know, there are pros and cons to that approach. But, you know, I think there's a lot of value. I mean, I have a business partner. I can't imagine her um but that's also a good example of like just you never know when you go for coffee like we met on twitter and then i asked her for coffee because i was talking to anyone who would talk to me and we hit it off and you know a few months later on our second lunch date we decided to start a business Um, (laughs) i mean i'm not sure i suggest that course of action but it worked out really well she's amazing yeah Uh, 
but you know, I mean, I, I think for people who are sort of approaching the end of their law school experience or they're just out of school, there's a lot of kind of emotional heft that you sort of have to deal with. Um, if things have not gone the way that you thought they might when you started, you know, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of kind of blaming, there's a lot of stress. I mean, the financial implications are huge. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, frankly, it is probably the worst financial decision they've ever made. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't have a great answer for how you deal with that, but I think you know, just sort of sitting with that and accepting and being like, wow, you know, this really might not have been the best choice. I'm going to try to make better choices going forward and pay more attention to reality. Um, you know, it can only help. Um, you know, there are like loan repayment options and whatever. But I mean, the reality is like, it's, it's tough out there for a lot of people. And One of the things I, I think too is if solo practice or if small firm practice is the answer for that person or if it's the best option for that person, uh, I hate I don't like that it so often is the option that feels like a fallback or like a, um, well, I couldn't do anything else, so I went solo. I mean, Atticus Finch was a solo practitioner, right? Like, solo practice yeah. is what law practice has traditionally been. Big law is actually the more modern anomaly. Yeah, the reality is, I mean, if you sort of think about, I mean, now that I'm an entrepreneur, I sort of think back, I'm like, wow, I was like really giving up a lot of money to those people who weren't actually doing all that much stuff for me, you know? Yeah. Um, like once you kind of shift your perspective to say, oh, like I get to make, the, you know, I get to make the decisions. I get to decide like what work I want to take on. Like I get to decide how I'm going to run this business and like what kind of values I'm going to have. I'm, you know, I'm a fan. I'm like all in on the entrepreneurial thing now, having done it. But if you told me that in law school, I'd be like, you're crazy. Like, A, I could, I could never do that. And B, like, I would never do that. And C, I'd probably be terrible at it. D, like, how would I figure everything out? Probably like, you just eventually figure it out. Like, you don't have well, to. Well, and, and one of the nice things about going solo in a law practice is that a lot of that is sort of prepackaged for you. You're an entrepreneur within a very narrow definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Lawyers have been hanging shingles for, you know, for hundreds of years. And so, uh, and we know it works. All you have to do is work hard and stick with it, and it's probably going to work. So, um, exactly. It, you basically have to decide, like, what's my niche area? How am I going to bring in clients? And, like, boom, you're good to go. Work your butt off. Yeah. And then you're good to I go. Mean, wait, like, honestly, if I'd started a solo practice when I left my big law firm, I'm sure I'd be making way more money than I'm making now. Yeah, you might be. And, you know, the, I've always described Trust it as me. sort of. Entre- <laughs> <laughs> I've always described it as sort of um, entrepreneurialism light, because yeah. so much of it is sort of predefined for you. That does that's not to cheapen it, but like if you're gonna if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, if and if starting your solo practice is the best option for you, don't be afraid of it. It's actually a good option, and it's relatively easy in the grand scheme of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, and there are all these resources. You know, you can right. be lawyers and all kinds of amazing stuff. You can go solo practice you if you want a little more hand-holding. You know, like, there, I mean, the bar associations have programs. The malpractice people have programs. Like, you're not just out there floating in the wind trying to figure out what your offering is. It's like, you're, it's pretty clear what you're selling. So, um, on that optimistic note, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I mean, I guess the only thing I'd add is, you know, people often ask me, like, should I go to law school? My default answer is always no. Um, not because I think necessarily that there's no value in law school, but just because I think you should really want to be there and you know why you're there. You should be stubborn um, enough to, to push past the no. 
Exactly. Like, I'm not going to tell you yes. I'm going to tell you no. This is, and I'm going to tell you all the reasons I think you shouldn't do it. And then if you sit down and you counter each of those reasons and you say, no, I, this is something I'm really committed to, something I really want to do, and I've, you know, I've evaluated the financial implications of it, and I've talked to people, great. Go and, and you have a realistic perspective of what's the likely output. Yeah, exactly. And you know what you'd be doing on a daily basis, and you've kind of you know you've sat and looked at that. And you know, but the world still needs good lawyers. I mean, there's a huge underserved legal need in America, which is the irony. And you know, we need like people who can think creatively about how to solve a lot of you know these access to justice issues and other issues. I mean, the world does. It. People say, oh, there are too many lawyers. Like there are not too many lawyers. There are too many people who don't want to be lawyers who are doing right. this. But, right. You know, we still need like. Those people who are dedicated and competent and like, I mean, they're solving problems for people. That's what lawyers do. I think that's very uh, accurate and poignant. I really like the line about there are too many people who are lawyers who don't want to be lawyers because we all feel like we know somebody who's trying to get out of law practice. But if everybody got into it with the right frame of mind, that might not be the case. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, you know, I mean, it's just a default option for people and it leads to a lot of misery but for the people who are born to do this like it's a great thing to do it's an honorable profession yeah all right well thanks so much for all of your thoughts on law school success and beyond and uh i hope we'll talk to you again someday about another topic thanks sam this was great and good luck everyone This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years, and I regularly got compliments from callers, clients, potential clients, opposing counsel about the great receptionists from Ruby. Um, But I also loved being a Ruby customer because of the way they treated me. So quick story about why that is. When my first daughter was born, um, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone, and I updated my status saying, hold my calls for 48 hours. Um, and I said that I was in the hospital <laughs> with giving birth to my daughter. My wife was giving birth to my daughter. Um, and um, I didn't think anything more of it. They held my calls. It all went smoothly. And when I got back to my office a few days later, there was a beautiful little care package waiting for me from Ruby. Um, whoever had fielded that status update saw that I was in the hospital um, for the birth of my daughter, and they sent you know a rattle and a onesie and and a, a bib and a couple some really nice things. It wasn't Ruby branded. It was just a really nice care package for the baby, and it was this really touching thing. And it was so touching that I'm still telling people about it years later. Um, Ruby still answers the phones for lawyerist, and I have to say that we've gotten great service from them throughout this time. I I don't get care packages anymore, obviously, because I'm not having kids anymore, but it's just been a wonderful experience. So I think you should give it a try. And since Ruby will answer your phones for free for 14 days uh, during the trial period, you've really got nothing to lose. So uh, I think you should go get started. And you can do that by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist. And if you do, Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. Catch us next week for Episode 7 when we talk with Guy Tsakalakis of AttorneySync about online marketing, SEO, and the hype of web marketing gurus.
To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.